Hi, and welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Goldwine, and on the show, I chat with LTCCC's Executive Director, Richard Mollett, about the hidden costs of COVID-19. Richard's been one of the leading voices advocating for long-term care residents the past few months, and in the interview, he explains why resident abuse and neglect and other violations are being left unchecked during the pandemic. A quick request before getting started. If you've been enjoying our show, subscribe and rate us on iTunes and Spotify, and spread the word to help us advocate for residents in long-term care. Thanks for your support, and here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Hi, Richard. Thanks for taking a break from your international multimedia talking tour. (laughs) Thank you, Eric. So we're recording this on May 18th. And at this point, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation has reported uh, more than 30,000 deaths in long-term care facilities with 45 states reporting, 150,000 cases. You've been talking to legislators, ombudsmen, advocates, journalists. What are, what, what are the issues that keep coming up? Or I'd say, what is the main issue that keeps coming up in these conversations? There have actually been a... Um, there have been a few. I mean, most people are obviously most concerned about about COVID-19 and the extent to which it's uh, infiltrating facilities, both in regard to residents, of course, but also in respect to staff and and that staff are being affected and their families are being affected. I think also at least what you know we're concerned about and what we're talking to to people about is that there is a tremendous amount of uh, reports we're getting on uh, substandard care on residents who are facing very, very serious neglect. And those reports have been increasing for several several weeks now. And it's, it's precisely what we feared, frankly, from the start, what I feared, that this would really expose some of the longstanding issues that we've seen in nursing homes with lack of staff, or insufficient staff, uh, insufficient infection control and protection protocols. But in regard to the, specifically in regard to the abuse and neglect that we're seeing, that there's just, you know, not enough staff to provide care in too many facilities on a regular basis. And then with COVID-19 hitting, residents having greater need and staff, you know, oftentimes calling out because they're sick or they have a loved one that you know they need to stay home with then it's exacerbated some of the you know the, the abuse and neglect about which we've long been concerned mm-hmm. and and as i just stated before people are starting to recognize these fatality rates and these infection rates but as you just mentioned it's uh, a lot of the other areas that might not be getting as much attention a lot of we're not getting the headlines saying that there's been X amount of cases of abuse, that there have been, um, that there have been this many uh, uh, cases where uh, there's been understaffing. Are there any examples uh, that you can think of or that that you've heard that really highlight uh, that highlight the neglect and abuse that is going on? 
Yeah, well, I mean, we're hearing we're, we're hearing from residents and, and and families, those who work close to them, uh, close with them, that there are you know a lot of residents that aren't being uh, changed. You know, family members who see who who do have the ability to Skype or FaceTime with their loved one, and they've noticed that their loved one is wearing the same clothing day after day after day after day. Uh, of residents not being bathed for more than a week at a time, residents not even getting um, their teeth brushed that that can't do that themselves. Uh, unfortunately, many residents who are just not even being given the time or the help that they need to to eat or to maintain their you know basic uh, uh, nourishment and hydration needs, you know being helped with a lot of people need help drinking water they need to be cute if they have dementia they have um you know need other assistance and that's just not happening or the meal times we're hearing about meal times being greatly abbreviated sometimes to as you know like 20 minutes for a meal and that's not enough for most people no matter for a, you know someone who may be slow and need, may need help in dining so they're not getting even you know basic food now, what is being done at the policy level, at the federal level, uh, to combat s some of these issues? Is anything being done, or is it is more of the attention uh, just focused on COVID nineteen? Can you give a summary of what's happening? So, in March, over the course of March, the uh, federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services (CMS), which of course oversees you know resident uh, and nursing home care and develops the requirements and regulations and, and guidance, et cetera, they, uh, they, they told that the state agencies, usually a state department of health, that in early March to limit the number of, limit, limit the scope in which they were inspecting facilities, excuse me, to for about six different reasons. And then on March 20th, they actually limited it further. And that, that policy is still in effect. And that policy says that the state health departments are only going into a nursing home to investigate uh, basically under two circumstances. One, if it's COVID-related, you know, to uh, protecting residents from infection, or two, if it's related to an allegation of immediate jeopardy. And we're concerned because uh, the, the work we've done over the years, the research we've done, you know, other research from uh, federal agencies as well as academia have shown that states, uh, state agencies, state surveyors very rarely identify when uh, residents are at risk for harm or put in immediate jeopardy. So the point here is that to rely on that identification before a state agency will even consider going into a nursing home is extremely dangerous. And as I was saying before, puts you know, in terms of residents being at risk, uh, at greater risk for abuse and neglect, it, it this really exacerbates, this policy, unfortunately, really exacerbates uh, that risk that there's abuse and neglect going on and that there is no monitoring or enforcement to counter it. So that, that's been a, a major concern of ours. And... Are, are any sur surveyors going in? How what is being done to to like? Are you hearing of of areas where there are are no surveyors going in? Are you hearing of 
uh, of differences by state. That's and so what we're hearing, it's very interesting, actually, you know, uh, information is coming out here and there. We've received we and other advocates have received a uh, I think it's close to 200 now of the inspections that have taken place since uh, early March. Again, very limited to, to these two areas. What we're hearing, you know, what I've heard talking to people in different states is that some states are going into nursing homes, uh, some state agencies, you know, the, the state inspectors are going in. In some states, we've heard that they're not going in at all. So we, we have those two limitations that I just mentioned, uh, an allegation uh, identified as immediate jeopardy or in terms of, you know, COVID-19. What we are, and, and excuse me, and on top of that, in order for the agency staff to go in, they need to have appropriate PPE, personal protective equipment, you know, masks, um, you know, potentially gowns, et cetera, to protect themselves and to protect residents from the spread of COVID-19, which, you know, makes sense, of course. But uh, what we, we're perceiving or hearing is that a lot of the um, agencies may be sitting back and saying, well, we don't have PPE and therefore we're just not going to go into facilities at all, or we're going to go into facilities in a very limited way. And what we have heard, and again, this is just, you know, um, observational and anecdotal based upon the information coming out, is that even when they go in, a lot of these inspections are pretty cursory. Normally, a, a survey of a facility uh, takes about Close to, close to a week, you know, let's say four or five days on average. Some of these surveys now under, you know, very tenuous situa- you know, circumstances for the residents are, are what we're hearing, are they're going in for just about four hours. And what can you really do? What can you really observe in a four-hour period? And again, as, you know, as you were alluding to, in some areas, they don't seem to be going in at all. Or if they are going in, it's under very, very limited circumstances. So, one of the things that we've been calling for in our advocacy is, of course, um, you know, personal protective equipment, PPE for nursing home residents and nursing home staff, but that it's absolutely essential that the state survey teams, the, the state agencies, be prioritized in terms of PPE because they have to be, you know, we have to make sure that they can get in and that they can address abuse and neglect. This has always been a problem in the nursing home world is that the, as I said before, the state agencies don't do a good job, frankly, in identifying when residents are put, uh, are harmed or put in harm's way. But one thing that is required, uh, at least on paper, is that they go in when there is a serious risk to a resident. And that we have to get back to doing that. We have to uh, move back in that direction. And I would say, you know, in terms of the federal policies that we're concerned about, is that along with the limited number of, of instances or limited scope in which the surveyors are going in, they are doing pretty much no enforcement action, meaning that they're, they're not really fining or uh, penalizing facilities in any way for substandard care. So the only circumstances right now pretty much in which a facility could face a fine or a penalty is if it's found to have put residents in immediate jeopardy, which is a, uh, an expression meaning the most generally the most serious circumstances for a resident, which their well-being is most at risk or there's an imminent danger of harm. 
So that's, um, you know, that, that, that certainly merits a penalty. Penalties are, from our perspective, important because they send a signal to nursing homes and to the industry at large that substandard care and, you know, abuse and neglect are not permissible and should not be profited on. Um, uh, on. But at the same time, you know, to have it so limited has been very troubling to us. I believe that there have been some some fines or potential fines for very serious infection control and prevention, but I think that's been again extremely limited. For instance, to the Kirkland facility in Washington State, where the coronavirus really first emanated in um, or first appeared in the United States, that that facility has received a uh, several hundred thousand dollar fine. But for the most part, what the state agencies are doing is just uh, essentially trying to get the nursing homes to correct. And, and of course, that's a priority for us. Nursing homes absolutely have to correct uh, as soon as they or, or an inspector or anyone else identifies a deficiency in care and safety. But again, without having a penalty for failing to comply with minimum standards, especially standards in which a um, one or more residents' lives or well-being is at risk, it's really essential that it's um, that that there be some teeth behind those standards, and those teeth are come in the form of generally a financial penalty. Uh, so one of the issues that uh, LTCC and other advocacy organizations have been uh, pushing really since mid-March uh, is transparency. And Earlier this month, uh, new federal requirements uh, for uh, reporting were announced. Um, can you walk me through what these requirements are, what they, what the timeline of them will be, and why they were put in place? Sure. So, I mean, and, and this is really, you know, overall a, a really good thing. And we've been concerned the states have really varied. You know, the, the federal government has not come up until now with a with requirements about what should be reported and how it should be reported both to the governments and to the public and as a result the states have varied tremendously you know some states have um, are reporting for instance Georgia is reporting both um, uh, suspected suspected deaths um, actual you know or known deaths due to covid as well as suspected and known cases of covid in the facilities uh, New Jersey is doing something similar, whereas New York and some other states have either not been reporting at all, or New York just recently started reporting the deaths in the facilities. And this has made it very confusing, and a lot of people have been concerned, uh, people that we hear from, that there is a an underreporting of the cases and the deaths. So what the what CMS did is they issued a an interim final rule what it's called. And essentially that means that the rule is going into effect and, it, and it's in effect as of May 8th when it was published in the federal register, register, register excuse me, but it could also, uh, it's open for comment, which is why it's an interim rule. So people can still comment and we uh, welcome and uh, encourage people to comment. They can go to regulations.gov and it's actually COVID-19 reporting should be a helpful way to find it, but it's under regulations.gov, and it's very easy to uh, to make a comment there. 
But what the facility is now required to do is twofold. One is reporting to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and two, CMS, the, these um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the agency, again, overseeing nursing home care, will be monitoring that, those data, and they will be, uh, it's expected by the end of this month, by the end of May, reporting that out on a facility-level basis to the public. So some of the things that they are reporting, this is what the facilities are reporting to the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I don't, I don't want people to confuse it with CMS. They have to report suspected and confirmed COVID-19 infections among both residents and staff, total number of deaths and COVID-19 deaths among residents and staff. And that's really important because, as I've been saying you know, throughout our conversation, we're very concerned that people are are suffering and dying as a result of, of neglect and, and substandard care, perhaps as much as they may be dying uh, or, or infected with COVID-19. Facilities have to report the personal protective equipment, the PPE and hand hygiene supplies in the facility, their ventilator capacity and supplies in the facility, the number of resident beds and the resident census, uh, they must report access to COVID-19 testing uh, for the residents of the facility, any staffing shortages, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services can actually also identify other things. And that could be something, if anyone wanted to comment on, that they can comment on as well of what should be reported. One thing that we've been advocating since uh, early March was that facilities should absolutely, from our perspective, be reporting the uh, actual staffing that are in the nursing home for uh, every day, preferably every shift. And this is something that has been required for about 18 years now that nursing homes have to post the staff uh, on the floor for every shift. And because people are not going into facilities to see this posting, and because it's so important that we know now more than ever, what the staffing is actually in the facility, this should be reported, from, you know, this is something we're advocating for, reported to the public on the facility's website, reported on the front door of the facility so people can see from the outside, and then reported to the state, you know, agency, the State Department of Health for public reporting that way as well. So those are things that the, that the facilities are reporting to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And then, as I mentioned before, CMS is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is anticipating publicly posting the data. And they say they're going to include facility names, the number of COVID-19 suspected and confirmed cases, the deaths, and then as they put it, other data as determined appropriately, appropriate, excuse me, weekly on their their data webpage, which is data.cms.gov. And we're going to be monitoring that as um, hopefully people listening to the program know, we publish uh, periodically a lot of data on nursing homes on a facility level basis for every state, uh, data on staffing, data on enforcement actions, data on, on other issues of interest to the public at nursinghome411.org. And some of those issues seem like things that even out 
outside the pandemic, uh, it seems like information that the public uh, might be entitled to. Um, or do you anticipate any of these data being regularly reported beyond uh, COVID-19? That's that's really interesting. I actually hadn't thought of it, but you're uh, what you you know what I hear you saying is exactly right. People are, have been asking me, well, you know, how as the how do we know how people are dying in nursing homes? Uh, what information do we have on that? Can we compare to the past? And we actually can't because the, that information is not is not generally made available. Frankly, it's it's not well reported. This is something that's uh, always amazed me in the course of, of my career at the at the coalition that uh, you know amazed and, and of course it saddened me as well that when people die in, uh, in in long-term care facilities whether it be a nursing home or assisted living even when people who are older adults you know die at home quite often even when when it's suspicious suspicious the way in which they died uh, no one investigates, no one really tracks these things, and it, very few of them even go to a, um, uh, you know, for a, a forensic investigation, even when there is a suspicion that there was, you know, someone was abused or neglected to death. So it would be great, I think, and that's something that, you know, now that you mentioned it, I think we should definitely include in our future advocacy that they continue to report deaths. Uh, and that that be made public and tracked on the federal website so we can see what is going on in these facilities, you know, beyond COVID. All right, we're going to wrap this up. I'm going to have you do a, a, recommendation, a couple of recommendations here. So as you know, with uh, with our guests, we do a two recommendations, one being a nursing home related uh, report or article or any kind of media and one that is non-nursing home. So let's start with your nursing home recommendation? Uh, well, there's actually a really great website, uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation, which funds a lot of work and some investigative uh, reporting and research as well into a variety of, of health issues. It's called kffkarenfredfred.org. They have a um, terrific website that and pages that are, I'm just going to scroll up really quickly, State data and policy actions to address coronavirus, and it's updated yeah. regular regularly. Excuse me, uh, but they provide really good information. Uh, very easy to look at. You know, data tables. You can look at maps and demographics, etc. So I would recommend that as a as a resource for yeah. you know for nursing home and other healthcare related issues. That's one of the, uh, I have that tab open, right? one of the 15 tabs I have open right now uh, where I got the fatality data. But yeah, I can, I can vouch for that. It's, uh, it's very thorough. Uh, it offers all sorts of breakdowns, um, all sorts of state-by-state -state data and information and policy that's easy to, easy to look at and easy to download. Other than that, I think, I don't know if I mentioned when we did the podcast, uh, our first podcast on COVID-19 about a month ago, that I was re reading The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. I just finished that. It's anyone looking for something that is enjoyable and very different from from the current situation and, and our uh, present conditions in life. 
in so many ways, uh, it was it was a good book, one of her one of her best. And then for pure escapism, we, I just finished watching the kids baking show, which I um, I don't know if I okay. mentioned that last time either. I hope not. I hope I'm not I'm not just repeating myself. But that was a um, uh, a lot of fun to watch actually, and um, picked up some good tips and probably have gained a bit of weight. I'm trying to trying to replicate <laughs> some of those some of the um, bakery items. So they're just uh, what, what like like uh, high school kids. Uh, how old are they? Or is it? They t- I think they tend to be like from eight to about eleven, so a little bit younger than high school. But they 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 it's not overly cute or anything like that. I didn't think anyway. But they all have it. They they compete against each other every episode and then one of them is eliminated every episode until the very end there are three left and one of them wins the like twenty five thousand dollars i think it is and a feature in the food network magazine but they they're very ingenious and also even though they're very competitive they do help each other out it's actually um you know it is a real one of the reality shows but uh you know you really do see something um something going on which is kind of kind of interesting to try to be creative and they have different challenges of course yeah and an important follow-up uh what did you try to try to bake from their show nothing that it, it was more inspiration that i wanted something sweet so i baked a chocolate chip cookies that i've a recipe that i've had for a very long time okay. <laughs> all right well thanks uh, thanks for for coming on and and Spending some time on the Nursing Home Four One One podcast. Yeah, Eric, thanks so much. Always, um, always appreciate it. these. Are a lot of fun and interesting. Thank you.